0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to Spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Andrea Rumler. Andrea is a licensed clinical counselor yoga teacher, and golf coach. She has a master's in clinical mental health counseling and comes with a wealth of knowledge around spirituality, psychology, philosophy, wellness, and social justice. In this week's episode, Andrea shares her surprising but inspiring journey into yoga, as well as some of the biggest lessons it taught her. We also discussed the importance of living in alignment with values and noticing our thoughts and feelings without judgment. This conversation expanded our perspectives of mental health, and provided many tangible actions to deal with anxiety and or depression. And thank you for discovering more with us this week.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues.
1: My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons. That will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Andrea, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you both for having me this morning.
1: Of course. Very excited to talk to you. And I think the place we'd like to start comes from the guest questionnaire that you provided over. One of the things that really popped out to me is our question around biggest accomplishments. And one of your answers to that was living by my values. And I think that's just such a powerful concept because so often, like society right now, we're drawn to like the doing things, kind of what accomplishments you're out doing in the world and really living by values, I think is so important. And I think seems to represent the way that you live your life. So I was wondering if you could share what some of your values are and what that means to you. Unpack that answer of living by your values as a big accomplishment.
2: Sure, I mean, when I first read that question, right, I immediately thought of the physical things that I have harbored and gathered in my life right so i i did buy a house and i have all these physical things that to some would be an accomplishment some that i definitely you know i take for granted but that i'm valuable of or that i value in my life but i think more so like really trying to align how i'm living with what i'm noticing and feeling and what i take you know as my value system in my life and making decisions based upon that and living true to that because we can kind of tell right and i'm sure we'll, we'll get into this but we can tell when we're not living by those values and maybe we're making decisions that don't feel the best to either our physical health or mental health whatever it may be just our wellness in general so really trying every day to make intentional decisions is something that i'm very thankful for that i've really tried to integrate into my life so i think that is one of my it's ongoing this is not a a finished accomplishment here but i think beyond my physical safety of the house that i bought aligning my life with the values that i've created and that continue to mold that's my biggest accomplishment yeah so something that gets me really excited and and is a continuous factor in my life
1: definitely yeah i love that would you mind sharing what some of those values are kind of how those ideas shape your actions, I think it's one thing to say, living in alignment with values, because we definitely right. resonate with that and understand what that means. But maybe for a practical listener, why it's important to live by values, maybe like a tangible example of how you do so. And then even on the other side that you alluded to, what can happen if we're not living in alignment with our values?
2: Okay, so yeah, I'll start with that second piece there, Aiden, like that dissonance that can come from like, maybe we know something looming and depending on our value system too, like, ethics and values, who do we get those from? How have we gathered those in our life? Where have we learned those from? Are we aware of our values? So one of the first things I like to do with some clients, either in my school or the private practice, is I give them a value sheet, just so I know what they're operating on. Um, So like family, connection, outdoors, respect, listening, all of these things, what's most important to us? So when we know these things and we're not maybe integrating them as much as we would like into our lives, like we have a lot of that dissonance and maybe that dissatisfaction coming from us too, which can create, you know, a spiral effect and so many other negative things in our life if we allow it. So some of them for me, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Eightfold Path from Buddhism. It's like right mindfulness, right action, right thought. um, And what does right mean? Right. So then we're left with that ambiguity, too. So it's um, non-harm to others, like justice system into our daily actions, too, in our in our decision making. So knowing how things impact others is probably my leading value system in my life. What am I doing? What causation and effect are my actions having on myself and others in the physical world around me and the energetic world around me? Like what feelings am I harboring that I'm taking to others? What am I projecting onto others? How is this going to impact not only like the economy, but like I'm really passionate about human trafficking too. So like everything we buy has a factor into like the trafficking world too. I know that's going in a tangent, but things like that. Those are some of my values that I trying to align, and we're actionable beings. We, everything we do is an action and it has an outcome. So if we can just be more aware of how those are integrated and how those impact the world, I'd say is my going back to that accomplishment. I think I've really worked hard on over the years trying to become more aware.
0: Yeah, really great answer. And I think you surely alluded on the concept of Buddhism as mm-hmm. part of your guiding lights. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm interested in like aside from the spirituality aspect, aside from the Buddhism practices aspect, you talk about the right actions or the right thinking or the right causations. And I sense a hint of metacognition aspect to it, like the metacognitive mm-hmm. ability to think about thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. As the Dr. Jordan B. Peterson talks about, the critical thinking is thinking about your thoughts. To me, something you've been practicing that according to your APAC principles. Um, So, like, what are the guiding lights on those? Like, when did you become familiar with such concepts? And why is it important for you to surround or center your values that you do live by and the values that you're aligned with, with those Mm -hmm. metacognitive aspects to it? Like, why is it important to you to think about these things, not just once, but rethink them in a very critical lens?
2: Sure, and I think once we develop that pattern too, it becomes more easily accessible to us to kind of perform that metacognition tool. But I think mine really began in probably younger college years. Like I always think that I knew um, a little bit more of my thoughts maybe than my peers did just because I would get annoyed easily and I was like where is this coming from like why am I so annoyed with other people not wanting to learn around me and then I got to college and I was like oh, okay this is it people around me now that are so passionate about learning now I can really dive deep into my own thoughts and I think the the main thing that you're getting at here too is getting to the root cause of our thoughts so not just acting without that background and reasoning behind it, even that awareness. I think getting to that root of like, okay, where is that thought coming from? Maybe where is it stemming from in my body or my past and not um, focusing so much on that, right? That is definitely a balance to be learned too because if we only did that, if we only did the metacognition and that thinking pattern, we would be so stuck in the past and stagnant. So I think it's a really fine line of, okay yeah I'm thinking this way because of that now I can move forward and I think it becomes easier once we've like really garnered that that pattern and that practice so it's important to me because like I said every action is kind of based on that so I want to keep myself in check too I have an action that matters in this world so I'd like to know like what part of my past did that stem from is it harming myself or others and then being able to adjust accordingly
1: Yeah, absolutely. The idea of it being a practice, I think is especially important to highlight because it's like that ongoing process of repetitive action. And really, the idea of curiosity really comes up for me in that, you know, it's the curiosity around why that thing happened or how that might impact the person down the road, but really being curious around the impact and continuing to practice that over and over again, really what's coming to mind. And I'm curious where, not to say where curiosity came from, but almost like the nature versus nurture element of that. Did you find yourself always curious growing up? And then you mentioned that transition into college, being surrounded in an environment that supported higher learning, that supported this curiosity. I was wondering if you kind of speak to that as to what your upbringing was a little bit like, like what were you like? Was it always curiosity? And then how did that transition once you got to those higher levels of learning?
2: yeah uh, i think i was always curious as a child i remember specifically just always being in the car with my parents who are wonderful and encourage that learning too so i think that's a big factor right maybe Mm -hmm. we all didn't have that growing up and that really stunts or you know puts us in that stagnant place too of not wanting to be curious so my parents were wonderful i just remember being in the car like asking questions about the universe and space and i was little you know this is like one of my first memories and about the moon and um they always encouraged me to like learn more and you know do my own research and that trait has kind of continued on i am never satisfied with what i know um so i'm always trying to continue to learn more um, but I definitely had a family and an older sister who encouraged that environment too. So I was always really involved in um, extracurriculars in middle school, high school, like Science Olympiad was one of my favorite things <laughs> to be involved in. I was nerding out then. So uh, couldn't do that now probably. I've lost much more of the mechanical skills that I had back then. But I always remember being in that environment, NHS band, all those good things that kind of help us get those different aspects of brain development. Uh, But yes, when I got to college, it was like I was surrounded with people who also wanted to learn in that regard. And I was taking classes that were so different from my high school career. So, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with that too, that, that difference there and that reflection that happens. And I did, um, I attended a liberal arts college. So I was taking things that were way different from what I wanted to study, which changed a lot too. I think I changed my majors four times, but I was taking things that were way outside of my realm of study which really encouraged me to kind of sit back and see how does this all play together? How is this all integrated? So this business guy that's taking a psychology class, like that's still important, even though the the world may view a counselor and a business person way different, we're really not. We're still operating in this world together and having those tools from different areas and disciplines, I think is probably what I liked most about the college that I attended. I was able to really um, grow into my thinking patterns.
0: You sound like an exceptional good team player because you care about the cohesion of a team and you understand the functionalities that are required to execute the team functions. And it sounds like you also had that curious. that Tendencies, whether it's nature or nurture, the influence or not. answers answer is both, obviously, right? Right. Is that you're able to propel you into this person that, you know, focus on different aspects of it to maximize the output. And I think that's a perfect segue to dive a little bit deeper into your family dynamics. So, for example, recently, I'm not going to be fully disclosing the details yet because I'm still in the unpacking process. And I had to do more further reflecting and journaling upon this. But recently, before this recording of this episode, I got into the most emotionally fraught and difficult fight of my life with my girlfriend, who -hmm. have the intention of getting married in the future. And I realized that my ineptness as a boyfriend is not because I'm a evil or selfish person. It's because Mm -hmm. I've never been in a committed relationship until her. Because when you're with someone in a committed relationship, you have to make more compromises. You can't always do what you want. And I grew Mm -hmm. up with a younger sister. So in a family dynamics, I was the older sibling. So I was used to getting my ways my whole life. And then when I was a single perpetually, so I was used to getting things my way. And then mm-hmm. so through this relationship that I love very much, I'm having a lot of steep learning curves, to say the least. <laughs> so when I examine your family dynamics, you are your younger sibling of an eight years difference, right? Your older sister was eight years older, yep. and you're also an aunt concurrently because your older sibling had a child who was 12 years old and I know that you this team player mentality is have some relationship with this dynamics you grew up with so I'd love for you to unpack and bring us onto this journey of how that has influenced you and shaped you by being the younger sibling first of all but also at the same time being an aunt
2: Absolutely. So I'll start when we were a little bit younger. Obviously I was when I was eight, she was 16. So uh, she didn't really want to be my friend at that point, right? She had her own life. She had her own boyfriends and friends and parties and things and such. So I was that annoying little sister. So for years, you know, I was in that mentality of like, I'm just the annoyance. I'm not really close with her. Like we went on family trips, but it was definitely a different story than when when we are older now so we're very very close so watching that relationship in a same thing like every relationship comes with its challenges and that has been one of the most rewarding for me because like i said when i was just getting out of high school she was still like a little bit of an age gap where we weren't entirely close so watching that form into what it is today has been really beautiful to me we really are um, each other's confidants and being an aunt too has been an amazing journey when she was a little bit younger too, and she had my nephew Tayden, she was in kind of a rocky place in her life. And I think that had a big impact on our relationship when we were younger too, and full disclosure. Many nights I was awoken to a phone call of my mom on the phone with the cops because my sister's going to jail again. So seeing that when I was growing up, too, was especially challenging because I love this woman in my life, right? She's my older sister. She protects me. She looks out for me, even if we're not entirely close. But watching her go through that journey, too, and have her own struggles, it taught me a lot as well. Um, I remember doing a lot of reflecting on that just kind of into these years as well. But she had my nephew, when she was kind of still in that rocky place for herself. So she was living at our home. Um, so I got to spend a lot of time with them, which I loved right for her. It probably wasn't the ideal situation, but I was super happy to be involved as much as I was like when I was home for the summers or any kind of breaks, I was the one that was, you know, caretaking and spending so much time with my sister. So I think that was really the jump start, and that saved her life. Um, having this child saved her life entirely. So reflecting on that with her too, was huge. And, and remember how um, emotional my mom was too throughout that journey. But it's been one of my favorite relationships, this sister and aunt dynamic. So being able to be kind of this mentor to my my nephew and watch him as he grows. And it's, it's, I try not to step in as much. I am that kind of personality where I'm like, oh, why aren't you doing it this way, right? And I can't do that, I'm not the parent. So that has taught me so much about myself too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like, you know, your sister's a huge element of your life both from an idea that we talk a lot about is pain reveals purpose and it sounds like your guys relationship has had a lot of highs a ton of lows a constant evolution from starting off as a child with that large difference to now becoming two of the closest people in one another's lives so that definitely makes me curious as to upon this reflection that you did what's one of the biggest lessons that you've learned from your sister and your guys relationship together over the years
2: Hmm, that's a great question Probably the biggest lesson is to keep nurturing those relationships. So there are many times where I probably could have just walked away and been like, you know what, that's not the direction I want my life to go. I'm not even going to be involved with you anymore you know, which would have been, I, if people choose that and that's valid, but I chose to keep nurturing that relationship with her. And it's now one of the most fulfilling, like we are each other's biggest supporters and we talk way more than I would have ever hoped, you know? So being able to keep pouring into that relationship and supporting her when she needed it most and her, me too, right? I haven't had the perfect story so she's been able to be that support person for me too and being able to be there for each other i'd say is the biggest lesson and to keep evaluating how i'm operating in that relationship and what i can do better to keep the relationship growing
0: yeah i obviously the that maternal energy is very evident not just through your professional identities as a counselor as a yoga teacher as a golf coach uh, but also as this like you talked about this middle bridge that helped,
2: right.
0: you know, you didn't really save your sister per se, but the childhood, but you are a very mm-hmm. integral piece in that picture. So since this maternal energy is very evident through your storytelling, Andrea, I was wondering, like, what is the genesis or the origin story behind that motivation? I just talked about your professional and your personal identities are very interwoven to show mm-hmm. that maternal advantage and instincts of yours. But like, why? Because you're very capable, you're very intelligent. It's my second time talking to you, but you have a lot of great qualities. It's evident that you would have succeeded in any other profession, but why particularly this therapist, this counselor, clinical profession that you chose?
2: Yeah. Thank you for asking that. And I think what you said is an interesting reflection because that's what I would have used too. It's kind of that bridge career for me. And I'll explain that a little bit more. So I saw these things happening in the world, things that I wasn't happy with, right? Like either the way people are being treated or just kind of the way the system is set up that I'm unhappy with and I would like to see operate differently. And I was like, man, what can I do that won't completely like burn me out? And counseling is definitely a field that can experience burnout, don't get me wrong there. But I think it was a perfect balance for me of wanting to share some of the tools that I've learned in my life, whether it be mental health or spirituality or wellness skills and give something tangible to these people that may be struggling in any way. Right. So whether it is because of the way the world operates or just somebody who is starting that journey of their own reflection um, or somebody who just needs more assistance or needs a good listener in their life, I want to give back to them in that way. So it's been a nice little niche for me to really explore how, My own wellness relays over to them too. So it's this constant give and take reflection kind of thing for me that ebbs and flows. So it's a space where it allows me to continue the journey that I've been on, but also share those tips and tricks with others. And I can still feel like I have that sense of connection with improving the consciousness state of the world too, uh, to try to help people get to, to be their own best self. So I think it kind of integrates and combines a lot of the things that I've learned over the years and, and perfectly allows me to kind of give back to people.
1: It almost seems like you're solving problems at the root issues, right? When we look mm-hmm. out at all of the vast cultural and systemic issues that we face, it A, seems intimidating as hell, but also seems <laughs> insolvable in a lot of ways. You know, it's been yes. set up so many for so many years, there's so many people involved, but really... Mm-hmm. I think the mental health and counseling space seems to be solving the root problem of like if people are have better mental health, feel better about themselves, feel better about the world, then ultimately they also create better things down the line. Kind of like that uh, web or ocean effect. It seems yeah. to seems to create. And I'm curious as to like how that not to say came to be because you kind of just talked through that, but really that intersection of like, was it counseling or yoga came first? I think that intersection between the two of one that people consider a profession and one that, I mean, some people do it professionally, but also consider more of like a mental health tool. But really I'm fascinated by that intersection and when those entered your life.
2: This is one of my favorite stories. Thank you for asking this, Aiden. Um, so, I was studying psychology when I first came to college. That was always an interest of mine. So, I came in right out of the gate, right, studying psychology. I believe it was my sophomore year uh, in college when Siena Heights was offering a free yoga class, and I had never even, never even experienced it at all. So, I was like, you know what, guys? Me and my roommates we were bored one night, free class, small college. We could walk there to the class. So, we were like, let's go. And I will tell you, it was one of the most frustrating things ever in my life. I hated everything about that class. And uh, when I tell people this story, they are just mind blown because who I was at that point, wasn't ready for yoga yet, you know, but it came at the perfect time. So then I was so frustrated by it and I have a very competitive spirit and I did way back then too. I wanted to keep perfecting it. I was like, I have to be good at this, you know, which is totally the opposite point of (laughs) yoga. So I took it, probably started off for the wrong reasons, but it led me exactly where I needed it to be, right? It did its job of forcing me off that pedestal. So I think it was already interwoven because like I said, I came in studying psychology, took that class probably my second year of college and continued for the wrong reasons at first, but then I quickly realized the the other benefits that it could have for me. I'm still a very um, go, go, go type of person, but I was especially more so before I started the yoga journey. So it really allowed me to kind of slow down and dive deeper into those reflections and reflective um, states that I wanted to be in. So yeah, it, it kind of came together, but then I got my yoga teacher training certificate in 2018. So it was after I graduated and was already in my grad program for clinical mental health. But I will say this, um, going through that teacher training <laughs> and I, I'm nervous about the professors at Siena hearing this statement, but going through that yoga teacher training program almost taught me more about mental health than my grad program. <laughs> Besides like the logistics and the ethics of, you know, the counseling field, the inner work that I did, I think opened up new doors that allowed me to work better with people than I could have gotten just from years of doing like private practice work. So the work that I did on myself was, gosh, so, so crucial, I think, to my professional and personal development. So they kind of go hand in hand now. I use them almost interchangeably, the skills that I learned from that yoga teacher training in my counseling practice. But I'm so happy that it all evolved at the time and the rate that it did, because I think I needed to do that first initial reflection journey in my undergrad studies. And then I really dove deeper in my grad work, and then I took that yoga teacher training. So it all kind of evolved at the right time in my eyes and allowed me really to to dive deeper.
1: I love that. And I think we almost have to zoom in on the point that you just made of yoga taught you more about mental health than learning about mental health at a grad level. But Mm -hmm. I think I'd first like to echo that this story isn't the way I saw it coming with you saying, going to your first yoga class was the most frustrating thing you've ever done. And I think that speaks to, I mean, personally, my experience with yoga sometimes, and I think cultures in general, like a lot of times when I talk to people that don't practice, it's like, oh, I could never sit still or sit in those positions for that long. It's like that inner resistance around just like a concept as a whole. And then also the idea that you mentioned of learning to do your yoga certificate allowed you to do inner work. I think a lot of people almost segment them of like doing a down dog and then doing reflection in a journal. So how the physical and the mental kind of tie together but I'd love for you to like walk us through a little bit more tangibly of what that either certificate the yoga teacher program did or yoga's effect on your life in general
2: Ooh, that's a huge question so how much time do we have <laughs> I'll start with your first point there Aiden is that like People generally respond a a typical way when we ask them about yoga, right? Or at least when I try to share that initially with them. Oh, I'm not flexible enough. Oh, I could never do that. Oh, I see your videos and I could never do something like that, right? So they already have this concept in their mind of what it looks like and what it's supposed to look like because it has been Westernized. It has been something for profit, which makes my heart hurt, right? Because that's so far from the point of yoga too. I'm not saying that all Western studios are bad, but we just have to be a little bit careful about what we're offering to people. So I've actually kind of strayed away from teaching um, and done a lot of just the the one-on-ones or small group work, not in a studio um, per se, but more so just that individual work. But um, going back to how yoga has impacted my life, was your second question there? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that inner work that I did for my teacher training, and I went into it with a different concept as well. I was like, okay, I'm gonna be taught on how to be a teacher. I'm gonna be taught how to run a yoga class, right? Like, and that was kind of it. I went in with those expectations, but what I came out with was something entirely different. It was really like earth shattering for my life and I, I so needed that. So instead of teaching us like the, the tangibles of like, okay, now we're gonna operate the class like this. And here's what you guys need to know about this sequence, which we eventually did, right? Because you do need those qualities of a yoga class. Um, what we really did for the, I think it was 16 weeks. It was a long one for eight hours, every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, it was this deep sacred time. So we sat down and we went through um, like kind of our, our past lives and like how our past has been integrated into who we are now. We did hours of meditations and breathing work and journaling times. Um, we went through Kundalini, we did a lot of group circle discussions where we just kind of broke down everything about us. So it kind of took off those masks, right? So we came in and we left completely open and ready to kind of share that with others. And I think that's what was most Life-changing for me is I did that work, so now I feel like I can hold another's hand while I'm walking them through that to whatever stage they're at, not saying that it'll affect them the same or that they need to start at the same place I did, but I feel so much more equipped now to, to jump into that space with other people. So it was the tangible stuff like how to teach a yoga class, but more so I feel ready to sit with others as they are on that journey too.
0: So I don't know if this question would yield any dividends or any results. It's not every day that we get to speak with not just a certified yoga instructor, but someone who actually has that spiritual undertone plus practice plus expertise in mental health and counseling. But a lot of people don't know this, especially as meditation and yoga became mainstream and popularized in the Western context. But there are some downsides and danger to meditation, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you meditate for a prolonged amount of period of time, During that state of consciousness, you're more prone to revisit your trauma in the past. Mm -hmm. And there are documented cases in the mental health space, people who re-experience PTSD involuntarily due to meditation. So there is such thing as minimum dose effective meditation, I believe Mm -hmm. at least with my limited practices and readings. Um, Do you have any comments on that? Because I think through you answering both of Aiden's questions, it talks about how truly earth shattering experiences has been for you very evident, but Mm -hmm. i think you gloss over a lot of those quote-unquote pain points right not just Mm -hmm. your life but i think it's truly talks about how for something to be truly earth-shattering as you called it it must have some serious transformational effect on you and i don't know if it obviously prompted you to revisit your trauma per se but have you seen any of that in your client work in your studio of facilitation Mm -hmm. with people or even with yourself that like what could happen or what did happen during that prolonged meditation because like we both meditate 20 minutes a day but that's not the same thing as meditating six hours or three hours or two hours like we don't know what we don't know and we don't know how the the ship of your conscious is gonna operate right. during sure. that state so i'd love for you to dive deeper if you may
2: yeah absolutely i think that's a fascinating um subject because it is not one size fits all and that's where i've kind of stepped away on my notes here i really wanted to talk about too, like how I used to be. So yoga meditation when I was younger too, when I was first learning it, I was so amped up about it. I was like, everybody needs to do this. And then I quickly found out, right? Like, no, not everyone's going to to get what I got from that. And that's okay. So now years into the practice, I've had two clinical years now of counseling under my belt. So you have to meet people where they're at, because if you do try to push something on, especially as a clinician, highly unethical and frowned upon, obviously, but trying to push something on someone that they're not ready for and might, like you said, introduce them to parts of their trauma that they are not ready to sit with is very, very dangerous. And I think that's a, a good thing to keep an eye open for. Um, one of my favorite books, and this is called Consciousness Medicine, kind of talks about exactly what we're talking about. Francois Burzat. she talks about the pre-work that has to go into even sitting down for a meditation. So she does talk about like the benefits of psychedelics done correctly, right? In a good space. But the first part she talks about is that journey that you have to have in the relationship that you have to have with somebody before you can even begin talking about a one minute meditation. So I see a lot of the times too with my clients. uh, I'll give you a good example here. I would love to dive deeper into this work with her but she's at a point where when i asked about a body scan for her just a quick check-in with the body and how she was feeling and then maybe the tenseness or just other emotions that she's storing in her body she was like no that's not something i'm i'm comfortable with or familiar with so we kind of had to go back to the beginning where i asked her where she was that in that process and she was like well sometimes i like to pay close attention to my feet, right? Like maybe even just painting her toenails or giving herself foot rubs. And I was like, great, let's start there. So in a way that was her jumpstart into that process of the body reflection. And that's a meditation for her. So kind of introducing those terms in that way because meditation and yoga can look so many different ways. So I think meeting people where they're at as far as like how ready they are to sit with themselves because it does bring up a lot so you have to make sure you're in that safe place with people that you can trust and kind of unpack this stuff with because if not i've seen it go a million negative ways too where people actually enter like psychosis going back to that metacognition if you only sit in that state and then you try to meditate and then you can't kind of bring yourself into the reality of the world too like you're only stuck in those internal patterns it can do some damage too so just being aware of kind of where other people are at and what you're sharing with them
1: yeah that's really an important distinction that you made kind of like everything in moderation and obviously the awareness as the undertone to all of it and really shines a light on how i guess important and admirable this work is there are so many complexities and so much individuality within each specific person And I'd kind of like to zoom in a little bit on like why some of these bigger things can come up during whether it's body scans or yoga or meditation. A lot of the topics that you were talking about, it's a book, The Body Keeps the Score. I forget who the author is. You have it in your hand right now. So I'm sure you have things to say, but I'd love to just explore, I guess, the body's relationship with emotion and ultimately how we live our lives.
2: Yeah, so just like the book title says, the body really does remember and it keeps the score. So everything that we experience, the body also experiences. So it's not just our mental capacity is going through this day, right? Like our body is so enmeshed and integrated into our everyday experience. So when we go too long without checking in, the body's gonna let us know that. And if we keep ignoring that part too, and that reminder, it's going to come up in negative ways for our well being. So, whatever that, and that could look a million different ways for people. A lot of the times, maybe it's like physical ailments, like you become sick or you have like pain in your shoulder and you're not quite sure why, right? a lot of people that i work with with trauma always complain about headaches and stomach aches and they're not quite sure why you know so they take the ibuprofen or whatever it is and and try to go along that way which is not their fault right because unless we're taught to kind of go inward and review those things safely uh, which has a lot to do with parenting and upbringing as well right and the conversations that we have but sitting with our body allows us to kind of go deeper into those experiences. So noticing, and that's, I'll say that a lot, which will probably get annoying, but noticing is the, is the biggest factor here. So being able to kind of stop, even if we're still in motion, right? Like walking meditation is one of my favorites. So I'm moving, I'm not completely still, but reflecting on and sitting with my own body to be like, man, yep. Like my left hip hurts today. What might be going on either emotionally, or is it just, you know, I had a physical week because a lot of our um, negative emotions, especially for women are stored in our hips. So then I try to reflect on, you know, am I holding something back? Is there something that I want to explore more that I'm not, you know, when I have trouble speaking, which is why I love karaoke, when I have trouble speaking and voicing myself, I'm like, okay, well, what am I holding back? Why do I not feel comfortable in this space? So each part of our body really gives us a good heads up of, of maybe areas that we need to explore or sit with more or notice more. So when I work with my trauma clients, uh, noticing their body, the client who really loves working with her feet right now, which I love so much, she gets stuck in an anxious pattern a lot in her thoughts. Like that cycle is so detrimental to her. So by introducing like the body scans for her, it brings her back into her nervous system. It brings her back into that feeling of safety, hopefully for her body which then in the neuroscience of trauma too, is, is fascinating. So there's three main parts. One of them is our prefrontal cortex, which goes offline if you've experienced trauma, or if you're in that heightened sense, the fight, flight, or freeze area. So then our bodies are ignored. So when we're able to really integrate the practices of the body and go back to our breath, which does amazing things for our body, even just two deep breaths kind of brings back online that prefrontal cortex, which brings back online our thinking brain, then we're able to view it rationally. So she's able to then shorten that cycle of anxiety for her, which is life-changing, right? She, that is so interwoven into every part of her life, which is is really affecting her. So just us even discussing like body practices is life-changing for her because she's never done that. She's never had a space where she could explore that. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer.
0: <laughs> no, we encourage long answers on the show. We, we do two and a half, three hours for a reason. So please don't feel pressured to keep a short form at it. Go okay. as long-winded as you want. Okay. I think that's so powerful for me to hear as a person who is going to the transitioning into clinical psychotherapy space but also he talks about the true integral and crucial relationship between our physiology and your psychology (laughs) right i think there is a common misbelief that people have that physical health and mental health are two separate entities it should be treated as such we know that's a fallacy due to lack of education due to stigma due to misinformation so i really respect you for taking that holistic approach because breathing work is a physiological work, but it's also a psychology work, right? Psychophysiological, it's both. So I wanna stick on this topic and zoom in a little bit further. So, and obviously we'll get to the more specifics about a trauma-informed yoga format versus a Western yoga format, because I know that's your specialty plus passion. Um, in terms of the, the physical health and psychological health, in terms of the yoga practice and breathing work, Like, can you share a few tips for people who are not as in tune in their physical health? Because for a person like you, an expert, you have the training and the practice and the noticing, like you talked about, right? You already have this neural pathways built in for noticing. So you can recognize the cues very easily. Like when you get the hip anxiety or whatever, you already have the metacognitive ability to ask yourself, why do I feel this way? And then you can proceed into an answer and then you can refine your actions moving forward. But for your clients or for people who is not as experienced, they may not have the noticing ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to share a few tangible tips for people so that when they do feel certain anxieties through a physical sensation, they know how to at least trigger that reaction?
2: Sure, yeah. My mind immediately goes a million different ways and so much good stuff to share there. But I'll give a few different examples, especially for the tangible pieces, I think that will be most helpful. Um, So for my younger students at school, Uh, obviously I start with listening to them and people talk about what's bothering them. Right. So I encourage them to even listen to themselves talking about it. Be like, Oh, you really brought that up to me quite a bit. Can we go a little bit deeper there? Like, what is really bothering you about this? So then that kind of flips that switch of, okay, that reflection mode. And then I, for a tangible step, I really, really encourage journaling and it can look different ways for different people, but that's a really easy way for processing for the brain because speaking about it also helps. But if you don't have a lot of options for that, like if I have a student who doesn't come from a home that encourages or fosters deep listening, they can always journal and be in that space with themselves. So that really um, garnishes that reflection, too, of, okay, now I'm going to sit down, I'm thinking about my thoughts, and I'm working through them. And it's kind of like a free association, too, because if they don't sit down with an agenda of what to journal about, things are going to arise in them. So giving yourself a chance, whether it's purposely calling a friend to, to talk things over that is bothering you instead of trying to brush it aside, maybe start there. Um, so I encourage that with my younger students as well. Going back to my maternal tendencies, uh, I work with, so I'm 26, but I work at a golf course still some days throughout the summer. And I knew a couple 19 and 20 year olds. So I'm obviously in a much different spot than them. Uh, so trying to be where they're at too and just kind of listening to what's going on in their life is still fun for me. But a lot of the times they'd be uh, coming to me and being like, Andrea, what do I do about this? And I would just say to them, and this became the saying of the summer, sit with it. Sit with it, please. You don't have to make any judgments or reactions right now notice it and sit with it. So I think as a tangible tool, that could be really helpful for people too. Like we don't always have to make decisions based off what we're feeling right now. We don't always have to react. We don't always have to do this. We don't always have to do that, right? So we can just sit with it. If something's really bothering you, if you're really happy, sit with it for a minute and just kind of soak that in. And in the yoga world, that's the integration phase. And for treating trauma, that's such an important phase. Okay, so we've done this body work. So we've done this reflection how is that going to change the future for us? Like, how are we going to build those practices into our, you know, tomorrows? What's that going to look like? So being able to just be present, which sounds so cliche. I know that mindfulness has become like a taboo word too, right? It's everywhere. Um, But truthfully, that's the gist of it is being able to sit with it, be present, reflect any way that you can do that. So I keep saying that too, which is probably very elusive, but finding ways that work for you how i do it is not going to look the same for other people so if a student really loves a sport because of these qualities that they gather from it that's beautiful really dive deep into that sport and reflect upon that sport and what it does for you so when i do college golf too that's what i encourage to my students to finding whatever works for you and applying it
1: it almost gives the i guess flexibility for each specific mm-hmm. persons where they are at in their specific point in time because mm-hmm. Sometimes a two-minute meditation for one person is like a huge transformational kind of step, just depends on where each specific person is at. So I really, you know, as elusive as you said, as it may be, it really, I guess, shines a light on all of this stuff is very unique, very individualized. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of the relationship of biology and psychology. Specifically, you mentioned the nervous system a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been thinking a lot about recently, because... I've realized my nervous system has been very unflexible over the years just from decades of pounding coffee. Sometimes when we get stressed, I forget to breathe, You know, not really taking those full deep breaths. I recently learned about diaphragmatic breathing and that was a game changer and a half. You're given a thumbs up, so I think you might have things to say around that. But really just that seven second exhale has been revolutionary in the sense that it never occurred to me to do that. And then with that one physiological approach, it completely changed the way that I feel even before and after a workout, or show up within work, or really just kind of all facets of life are impacted by our physiology, and ultimately, our nervous systems. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk through how you think about some of those elements, whether it's the breath specifically from maybe the yoga practice, or even its effect on the nervous system, because I think it's something that isn't talked about enough, you know, it's physical health or mental health, but I see the nervous system is almost the bridge between those two concepts. So I was wondering, you know, what comes up for you with those ideas?
2: Yeah, lots of thoughts. The nervous system kind of runs our life. So being able to feel like we're in control of that, not even in control, in partnership with our nervous system, I think is super important. Uh, How I usually begin these conversations, especially with clients or the teachers at my school is, uh, so there's different levels of stress, right? We can have good stress, like being nervous about you know, presenting or being on a pocket. That's great stress, right? Being able to do something that we love that can release that cortisol, uh, norepinephrine in our body, which is not entirely bad. But when it crosses that line of toxic stress, of that chronic stress every day where we're not even realizing that we're releasing that that's when we start to feel on edge that's when we get the headaches and the the stomach aches and that's when we have a shorter fuse right that's when we have worse sleep which is also integral to mental health so when we prolong those facets of our life where it is chronic stress or whatever it may be for the body something that's releasing something negative and we can't stop it and we don't notice it that's when it can have all of the effects So being able to have tools like the diaphragmatic breathing, which is phenomenal um, and one of the best in my opinion, being able to utilize those tools, um, like I said, to get the brain back online, to calm the heart rate, the HVA is something that Bessel talks about a lot and the body keeps the score. So being able to like stabilize that in our body is crucial for our well being. So it leads to better sleep. It leads to better relationships because we're calmer, right? We're able to think more clearly. We're able to see things in a different light, too. So being able to connect and notice when we do need to kind of calm our nervous systems down is vital to well being.
0: Uh, really quickly, could you explain that approach to breathing for people? Because I don't know what the exercise entails. So.
2: The diaphragmatic breathing? Yes. Sure, yeah. So I try to teach it first in a three-part. So, like, we can feel our chest rise when we breathe and we inhale, right? That's one. We can feel our rib cage expand. But then diaphragmatic breathing is really lifting the belly. So breathing into that lower belly and leaving the the chest kind of more calm during this breathing exercise and then breathing in. Um, So it's not so much the shoulders. Right, because a lot of our breaths when they're up here are shallow so when we breathe into that lower belly it kind of fills the lungs and does all the good benefits that we want because a lot of our breathing is shallow and up here not terrible right we need to do that but also when we breathe into the diaphragm that's when all the goodies come from it like calming the nervous system releasing all those good endorphins so um, diaphragmatic is just that really deep belly breathing
1: and I just want to echo the power of the goodies that you just mentioned in a science like data kind of side, because I've been exploring this a lot and I wear a whoop right now, which okay. tracks my heart rate variability in kind of real time. And in the last two weeks of practicing these diaphragmatic breaths, my HRV has gone up 10 to 20%, you know, the morning after of like ending the day with these diaphragmatic breaths, like really clear data on the power of these basic practices. like. Breath is free, can be accessed anytime, can be learned by just listening to Andrea explain it on a podcast. Like I think it's just something that's always with us. And this almost reminds me of, it was either a book or a podcast I read or heard from Jay Shetty. And he said on his first day of monk school, it wasn't anything groundbreaking. It wasn't anything having to do with, you know, the adventure of being a monk, but really the first practice day one, phase one was the breath. It's the only thing that will be with you from when you're born to when you die. You know, I guess that viewpoint and accessibility of it really just makes such a profound difference. So I'd really like to just kind of echo home a lot of the stuff that you said around the breath. It's always with us. It's always there.
2: I'd like to connect that to it. And that's a great reflection. I really like that. Something that was kind of profound in my yoga teaching too is, you know, we get nervous before we teach a class, right? We hope these people have all these different expectations met during the class. What is that going to look like for them? Do they like that pose? Do they like this music? All these different normal human thoughts, right? Um, one of my mentors said to me, Andrea, if you can get people on the mat and to breathe, you've done enough. Right, so that thought of just always coming back to the breath and being able to share that with people and holding a space where they can do that safely, just breathing deeply, we've done enough for that yoga class, you know? One of my favorite ways to end a yoga class is by asking, like, what can you take from the mat into your everyday life? And oftentimes I'll reiterate the importance of the breath work. We can always feel free to come back to our breath. And that can be a really safe statement for people. Like, yep, everything that I need to calm me down right now is I already have in me. So it can be you know, really good for that mental health too and in a safe spot, especially for people who have experienced trauma. But that also leads us to the conversation of that hasn't been a safe place for them, their body. So maybe they are not ready for that work yet. So it all kind of depends, like we've been kind of amplifying and emphasizing is that it it all depends on the person. So before we begin any of these practices, you first need to know where you're meeting yourself at.
0: I think that's very profound because like people and life coaches and a lot of people in this industry or in the servicing industry, they often talk about meeting the clients where they're at. But this Mm -hmm. is the first time I've heard someone, not just the show, but talk about how meeting where you at first. Because I think it's a concept I've listened and read on the book recently that there is no such thing as loving for others without the self love, right? Because, like, you and this sounds so cliche, but if you really unpack the wisdom in that timeless sentence of self love before the loving others, is I think it's profound and I think it's amazing. And just on a tangent on that topic, I do want to say that breath work has a lot of benefit we talked about, but even for golf. And obviously, breath work is very crucial professionally, literally in terms of the swing, the directions, or everything. And also in terms of squeezing for your rifle practices, for targeting practices, your breath work also affects your timing of the squeezing of that trigger. And that squeezing of the trigger also affects how the bullet is released in terms of the target where you're wanting to shoot and with your intention. So, breath work has a lot of direct and indirect benefits in terms of your physiology, but in terms of your performance. But in this case, we're talking about like living, right? We're talking about enhancing our quality of life. Um, so with that, I want to take a soft pivot and almost like connect the couple of topics we've been talking about. It's like the yoga and golf. And we talked briefly offline about you as someone who have that multifaceted, but also multidimensional identities as a clinical counselor, as a golf instructor, as a yoga instructor, what similarities or themes you yourself find through your experiences of working but also training yourself between yoga and golf because those two aren't very common themes or topics or identities that come up a lot and obviously your expertise in mental health is underlying bridge that connects the two in this harmonic relationship that you have uh, before people who don't understand that relationship like why golf and yoga and i think you've talked a lot about yoga so far but like you know like golf just seems like a very random mix into this into this identity of yours so
2: it was very random for me i had no intentions of picking up the sport but in high school they needed uh, a good student and somebody who was athletic to join the team so i picked up the club and it stuck with me after all these years darn it So um, I'm stuck with it now, but I think it is a really fascinating um, overlap between my interests here, right? Because golf does seem very random in this mix of things. Like why does this yoga instructor love golf? Just like we were talking about earlier, finding those activities that kind of combine your passions and is that release for you? And golf is definitely that release for me. And I'll explain that a little bit further. I initially stuck with golf back in high school because I get six hours outside alone, you know, like what beats that? I get to walk outdoors. I get to miss school as a good student. Um, But I get to do, you know, something that I love. But this was another interesting part of it, too, is that it taught me so much. I think every reflective paper in high school and college, I talked about golf because it, it was something that took a lot of work and humility and patience, which overlaps with other things in life that we try to do, right? So by having an area that's really streamlined for those practices, it helped me become more aware of uh, my part in it. So how do I grow to become more patient and hardworking and golf is a game of etiquette and respect. So how can I, you know, boost that in my life too. What ways can I care for the my teammates because they're my competitor, because golf is an individual sport, but I'm still a part of that team. So how do I balance my competitive nature but also rooting for my teammate? So it's been a really interesting journey too, like the initial things that golf has taught me, being on a college team with some of my best friends and, you know, trying to improve my game versus a coaching world now and a coaching hat that I wear has been Coaching has been by far my favorite part. It's been such a beautiful journey for me, but I think it it directly overlaps with everything we've been speaking about today. How stable and safe do you feel in your body before you pick up that club? And how does that, if you're not, how does that relate over to the game? I have one of my players who, uh, So she doesn't breathe and she steps up to the ball, you know, so we're working specifically on that and maybe the outcomes that it will have if she does spend time to like sit with herself more and become more aware of her breath. We have three coaches, one that's very technical, one that does more of the like recruiting side of things and the business work. And then I kind of, I think, round out the team because I do focus solely more on that mental health aspect. Golf is a mental game. I'm sure you know that, Ben. If you are not, I don't wanna put this, if you're not feeling great that day, or you're feeling like something else is impacting you, uh, it's gonna come out in your game. So if you can get a handle on and be aware of your thoughts and how they're impacting your physical body, It's going to change your golf game. You know, the best golfers always talk about the mental side of their practice too. You know, maybe meeting with a sports psychologist or a counselor or, you know, working out is another way of improving mental health too and doing it purposely, moving our body in that way. So, being able to integrate the two is one of my favorite aspects of golf. So, I always ask my players ahead of time, and this is something that I really have enjoyed doing too. Before the season starts, I have a questionnaire for them. Uh, kind of to jumpstart the self-awareness for them. But I asked them, you know, what what is the strength of your game? What's the weakness? And then how do you like to be coached on the course when you're playing bad? How do you like to be coached when you're playing well? So to try to get them to think about how do I want to be approached? How do I know when I'm in that bad mental space? How do I know when I'm feeling good about my game? And how do I want to interact accordingly? We talk about goals quite a bit too, to try to keep that always at the forefront of their minds of ways they want to improve as well.
1: It almost sounds like a bit of a mindset coach of the golf game, or like a m at least a mindset lens, and that makes me really curious as to how this shows up like on the course. Are you kind of putting like a counseling hat on and like asking them questions about how things are going, or are you sent like is it more instructive or more inquiry based, like? You mentioned the questionnaire that dictates who needs what when, but really, you know, what does that look like on the day-to-day, excluding the variability of the specific people? But like, you know, are you going into counseling mode, teaching mode, saying like, I would do this in this situation? I don't know. The mindset lens around golf definitely fascinates me and I'm wondering if you could speak to it.
2: Sure. Absolutely. I think it correlates well with what we've been speaking about because it is so individual. So I am going to approach each player differently. So that relationship building has to come first, right? Because if I don't have that relationship with them, well, any advice that I give or tips that I give probably won't be received well, but also knowing what they are looking for. And by asking them even that simple question, like I said, it allows them to do that reflection of what do I want, what do I need, where am I at? So day to day though, you asked, I would, not give advice unless they ask me specifically. I've lived off that kind of concept for years now as a coaching staff member, but I do kind of enter my counseling mode, right? Not ethically, I can't counsel my players, but I use a lot of the same tips and tricks from the counseling realm into my players too. So I do care deeply about them and having them know that will change that relationship too. Knowing kind of who they are outside of golf too, to be able to interact with them and, gauge kind of their interest and their values, which again, plays directly into how we play our golf game. So getting to know them first and then kind of stepping over into that coach's position. So going up and I I know I have one player, a senior woman for me, she needs that pep talk at all times. She wants to be told what she's doing wrong. So with her, I'm very technical. But on the same flip side of the coin, she needs to be really engaged. So when I go up to her, she likes that good conversation. She likes to talk out her shots. She likes to know what's coming next. She's very uh, immersed in that mental side of the game. So just knowing her beforehand, I know what I'm walking into. But I have other players who are completely different. I had one player who didn't wanna talk about golf ever, right? So I come up to her and knowing her and having that relationship, we can talk about whatever else we wanna talk about her and I had some good conversations about the world and capitalism and all that fun stuff. So we got pretty heavy out there on the golf course, but that's what she needed. She had some of her best rounds, you know, and I was right there to watch her do it. So I think me allowing them that space of like figuring out what how it is they want to be coached uh, really encourages that reflection piece. So it's definitely individualized uh, for what they're looking for. And I typically don't. Give advice on the swing unless when I'm comfortable with them and they're comfortable with me or they specifically ask for it.
0: Yeah, I think that's amazing. I just want to highlight a approach or something you do with your players as a coach is you ask them what you're looking for and you ask them to reflect upon their victorious moments or their peaks. You also ask them to reflect on during their pain points. I don't remember a single moment in my athlete career in high school. I played three sports and I've had great relationships with my coaches None of the single coach have asked me what I'm looking for as a player. There is like, your job as a player is to listen to me and give me that victory. That's it mm-hmm. for all, all my four years of playing. But you're telling me you as a coach, you actually inquire about what the players are seeking. right? It's not this imposed expectations of, I expect you to execute this route, this technique to secure that W for the team. But what are you seeking? I think it's so profound.
2: I think that's a good point, Ben, because like, I think that does exactly what maybe subconsciously those intentions were for that coach, right? Like it was just his team. Uh, the players weren't really a part of it. But for ours, I really want them to feel kind of involved in the process, even. Like, this is a team sport. We care about what you are doing as well, but it also encourages buy-in for them. Not just buy-in with a negative connotation, but buy-in for them to care about the team. Uh, I talk with them quite a bit about, you know, being intentional with our time. So we don't want to come out here and, and waste these practice hours, you know? Like, we want it to be something that you're pouring into and actively aware of what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish. And that way they have a little bit more autonomy over what they're doing during practice too. So if you do notice that you wanna hit sand shots more and you need to practice that aspect, go right ahead. If you if that's how you're gonna get something out of this practice and wanna come back tomorrow, let's do that.
0: Ask your uh, golf team, can kind a of grown ass men join <laughs> doing their next practice yeah. out in the sands? <laughs> I will.
2: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> no, so I say all that to highlight the importance of human relationship, because obviously when you're within the container of therapy space, the trust is expected because you're dealing with your patients and your clients' most intimate and vulnerable moments. But even within that container space, you have to earn that trust. But it's given. It's given that a client will submit their Or to resign their will. And they have to be submissive in terms of transparencies, honesty, and vulnerability. So that's a given for therapy. But for a golf team or for the containers of golf as a coach, that's not a requirement for players, right? So he talks about even for a seemingly unrelated field like golf, human relationship and trust is still the baseline, period, right? That's why without these, your functionality as one of the three coaches will be obsolete without that bridging. like I think like bridging is like a huge thing from this. Topics, so I just wanted to highlight that for the people because it's very evident what you're doing is working and that you're a great coach, but you're not just a great coach because of your mental health functionality, quote unquote, or your expertise from your job as a professional counselor, but because you understand the importance of human factors. So, Sure,
2: thank you for that reflection as well. I think it also was important to note The complexities of being a part of the coaching staff, right? Because we're all grown adults on the coaching staff, but we all have our differences and different layers and different values. Emphasis on the values. I love my head coach and he's one of the main people in my life. Um, He's like a father to me, but we butt heads quite a bit. So being able to recognize how I'm moving into that space of a conversation with him, too, that's going to impact the team. So there's so many different layers, right, and relationships that we as humans get to be aware of. And I think that's a really cool thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And all of these things that we've been talking about with the golf lens right now, but it sounds like almost a connection based model. We've been talking about your golf experience and coach, but like we haven't talked anything about the technical elements or the rules of golf, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really like a connection based approach. And that kind of leads me into one of the answers that you gave on the question of saying that you're most interested in human connection which i just think is fascinating because it seems almost as the undertone of all of the different identities all of the different hats that you've been wearing i had a phrase come to mind as you were talking that i don't know it doesn't seem to fit but i feel compelled to share and see what it might come up with you but it's the idea that connection is the absence of agenda so it's the idea that Like, I guess true connection really is not having an agenda whatsoever, but really all of the ideas that you've just been talking about, meeting the people where they are, trying to hear them, what they may need, uh, and how you can best support them. So just kind of your thoughts around human connection, why it's one of the things that you're the most interested in, and even if, you know, that saying brings anything to light for you.
2: I think human connection is pretty much the, the sole purpose of my being, right? And I, I view it as top notch for why we're alive, right? We get to experience all these things with other living beings and not even just human connection with other humans, but like the living world I see as so beneficial and important to my life and my values. But yeah, it really is the undertone of everything because like Ben was saying too, if you don't have a good relationship with somebody and actively participating in bettering it, they're not going to trust you. They're not going to enter that space with you to even begin that work, to begin any work, whether we're talking about golf or mental health, they're not going to do that with me if they don't feel uh, a sincere connection to me. So that quote that you shared, Aiden, yeah, I really like that because when we think of an agenda, right? Like what does that bring up for us? That, That means that we have expectations to meet right? We have a, a guideline that we want to follow. So what happens when we don't meet those? We're going to have negative thoughts or feelings associated with that person or experience. So when we kind of throw that to the side, not saying that we don't have goals, right, or plans, those are can be mutually exclusive, but we don't stick to that strict plan because then if we don't hit it, then that forms those negative thoughts. So I think going into human relationships like that not so much expecting this, this, and this from person A, B, and C, right? But we go into it with that open heart and open space and that ground level foundational work of, of caring about them and who they are and then beginning that work. I think it comes naturally, right? Like what you want to accomplish with that person and different people are different things for us, whether it's said out loud and vocalized or more internally right. Like one person can't be that everything for you. So getting to know people on their levels and what they really care about, I think then the then the good work really begins.
1: Absolutely. That almost ties in the nurturing element mm-hmm. that we mentioned earlier in the conversation, but really, you know, watering the grass to make it green and not the grass is always greener on the other side. And I think mm-hmm. you introduced an interesting idea that I guess different friends or different people in our lives can serve different purposes. And not to say that people are serving a specific thing, but like almost how we have specific identities. We also have relationships with specific identities or like for specific purposes. Like I clearly have friends that I'd like to talk about, you know, holistic health with, and then also friends that I'd like to like party and watch football with, you know, like there's no positives or negatives around those things. It's just similar to how we're all unique and complex and individualized. I think our relationships also are like that as well.
2: Absolutely, and I think what really is important there is your awareness of that. So one's not right, one's not wrong, right? But we have that awareness of, okay, now I'm really feeling like I need this part of my personality or identity, so I'm going to go be with that community that serves that purpose, right? We're not following that agenda. We don't have those strict expectations of those people. But it comes naturally and intuitively, depending on how you're feeling, you know, and what you're kind of seeking for yourself, too. So, yeah, I like that a lot.
0: Yeah, that resonates with me super, uber deeply because it cuts me where it hurts. (laughs) That's something that I've struggled for years on end uh, with my romantic relationships, but also with my friendships. Uh, Because I I have a pretty special uh, friendship and connections with Aiden. We're business partners on this venture. We're podcast hosts. He's one of my closest friends to date, which is pretty crazy because I've only known him for like three years now. And him and I, we can talk about from partying to sports, to holistic health, to meditation, to spiritualities, to entrepreneurship, all within the containers of four hours. Very fluidly. And we love it. Right. But I do struggle on that front end because I do seek out these novel and novel identities among my friends because i i seek out people who can fulfill all those criteria, check all the boxes not just one or two because of the opportunity cost i asked myself uh, why would i spend three hours on a saturday night just to party with you when i could do that with a friend who i can party with but also talk about life with and then a therapist told me recently through this the toughest fight i've had my therapist told me that he first asked me this once again deep cut question he's like benoit when you think about this dilemma when you think about this complaints or qualms you have against some of your friends ask yourself are you fulfilling that for everyone i was like damn i was like no i'm not you know (laughs) I'm, i'm definitely not so he's like so is it a little bit unrealistic for you to impose that requirement for everyone else for something you can't even do yourself i was like say no more and that was a completion of our therapy session (laughs) yeah no seriously it made me ponder i was like wow that's very true like how can i expect something that even i myself can't fulfill for other people how can i expect the same thing in return and obviously not to turn this selfishly into a therapy session for myself from you but i wanted to share that because that's truly an area i've struggled for a long time because i'm so big on opportunity costs i'm so big on optimizing everything in my life and in terms of the human connection, that's something I I value deeply about because that's my whole career. And just like yourself, it's the core light of my being, like you said, so beautifully, but something I really struggle with at the same time. So,
2: Absolutely. I'm not perfect either. I may teach all of these things to other, to other people, right? But I definitely still have practices that I'm doing on my own being and consciousness. It's never ending work, but that's the beautiful part of it too. There's always something new to learn about yourself and and grow upon and sit with. So, you know, we're learning new things every day, but even in my current romantic relationship, uh, I've fallen into into that trap many times. I'm like, well, why can't you be that person I talk philosophy with for six hours? Like I need that today, right? And he's like, Andrea, just know that's not gonna be it. So I call up a friend that I know I can do that with, and that's okay, right? He has his own interests and values and things that we can share and learn about but some things are are just for different relationships so uh, i think you said something interesting too which brings me back full circle to my interest in buddhism is like the identities that we give ourselves and impose upon other people can be either very very helpful or very detrimental too right when we're expecting some of those things but even the identities that we give ourselves i think is something worth some awareness too because words, words are a kind of potion. So when we try to give ourselves those labels and identities, too, I think it can can be a downfall sometimes. But that was just a quick note that popped into my head.
1: I'd like to double click on the note that you just brought up because <laughs> I mean, identity is something that we talk a lot about on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to hear kind of the Buddhism lens of it all, and even I'm not sure if it ties in, but the words are potions that, idea that you taught up, like. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. It's uh, the Don Miguel Ruiz book, The Four Agreements. His first one is be impeccable with our word. Ultimately, you know, our words create our realities. How we, you know, shape our experience. So really, our words dictate our identities of what we kind of, I guess, associate with. How we define ourselves. One of the big mental switches that I had was to start defining myself and shaping my identity around. Adjectives rather than nouns, because nouns are subjective and can fade. You know, when I phased out of my career as an accountant, it was like, you know, cue identity crisis. What are you if if you're no longer an accountant? I know that happens a lot with athletes and people in like big life transitions, but shaping identities through language like we talked about, but through adjectives of I am compassionate, I am curious, that's more of a long-lasting lens that can stay with us for... A long time so quick reflection there but i'm curious as to see the buddhism side and really how you integrate those different elements within thinking about identity
2: i think that was a beautiful summation and reflection there for you aiden um i think that sums up very well so for buddhism it's about more so like stripping the ego so like taking those expectations that aren't serving ourselves and getting rid of them um going back to that core and going back to those actions and the thoughts rather than like those tangible accomplishments not saying that they're always bad right but just viewing them in a different light one of my favorite quotes of buddhists we study buddhism not to be a better buddhist but to be a better whatever you are so we can use a lot of these things we don't have to be a strict buddhist follow this pattern every single day you most likely can right we have that option as well but integrating those kinds of of thoughts and behaviors into our everyday life, no matter what you are. So we can still be that accountant that's Buddhist, right? It's just, so we don't want them to be clashing, but oftentimes we live in this life where we, we create those boxes for ourselves. Uh, I'm an accountant so I can only do this, this and this and that looks this certain way. Or I'm a counselor, I can only do this because it looks like this, this and this, right? Like we're creating those mental boxes in our lives where we're only sticking to that. So whether it's a a vocalized potion of those words or internalized, uh, we have many boxes in our life. So just trying to get down to that baseline foundational work of know who really am I Uh, What does that self look like without all of those ego identities? So exactly what you said, having that be I am compassionate or I'm a learner, I'm a being, I'm, you know, X, Y, and Z, changes how we operate in this world too. So I think that was a beautiful thing that you said. Just evaluating and not all boxes are bad that we live in, right? But just trying to see how we interact with each of those.
1: Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Andrea. Please tune in next Monday to check out part two of the conversation where we dive deeper into her personal stories and perspectives on Buddhist philosophies, trauma-informed yoga, and more. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts,
1: and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.